Hey folks, this is Abel James, and thanks so much for joining us on the Fat Burning Man Show, where we talk about real food and real results. Have you heard this one before? According to brain scans, sugar is more addictive than cocaine. Now, I know people who have heard of this <laughs> love to bicker about it, but you know, the truth be told, I've never had cocaine or tried it or anything like that, but I have had sugar, and I can tell you that that cracks me out. I have yet to meet a single human being who isn't totally affected by sugar, usually in, in a, I'll say a positive way, right away, and then totally negative after that, straight downhill. Just think about a kid and the crazy amount of energy they have for a little while, and then the tantrum and the crash. Why do you think that would ever change as we age? It doesn't. Grown-ups have tantrums too. But anyway, once you kick sugar, your whole life and outlook on life can change for the better, for good. And you can kick some certain foods that you know are bad for you, your trigger foods, out for good. And when you do, oh man, does it serve you. So that's what today's show is about. And I can't think of a better person to talk to than Dr. Vera Tarman. Now, if it sounds crazy to think of sugar as something that's super addictive, consider this. In the early 1900s, the average American ate around five pounds of sugar every year. That sounds pretty reasonable when you split it up over 365 days. And of course, some people ate less, some people ate more. But by the year 2000, the average American was eating 150 pounds of sugar per year. That's 30 times more sugar. And it's gotten worse since then. It hasn't gotten better. All of this progress in technology all around us and all the advances in medicine that the scientific community loves to talk about, we're fatter and sicker than ever. You can also think about it this way. I'm somewhere around, you know, I go between 165 and 175, sometimes around 180, depending on what I'm up to. And most people in America are eating around that many pounds. They're overeating my body weight in sugar every single year. Some of these people are kids. We need help. Our kids need help. This substance is doing terrible things to us, and it's in almost everything. So to help us sort it out, Dr. Tarman herself, she dropped over 100 pounds and has kept it off for 12 years and counting. She's the medical director of one of Canada's largest treatment centers, for substance abuse, and she's spearheaded two unique programs for food addiction. Dr. Tarman is the author of Food Junkies, Recovery from Food Addiction. Now, before we get to the interview, here's a review that came in from Nurse Girl. <laughs> she says, I came across your show about a year ago through a podcast search for health and fitness. I love the show for so many reasons. The topics apply to people who want to get healthy, but if you want to get ripped and lean, there's some of that too. The topics apply to men and women. A lot of fitness podcasts address men more than women, but most of your topics are suited for both. I've learned of other fitness and health professionals from your show and now follow them too. Sarah Ballantyne, L. Russ, Drew Manning, just listened to Dr. Saul and plan to increase my vitamin C. You're positively influencing lives, and since I'm 54 female and work as a nurse practitioner, I learn for myself and my clients. Thanks, Abel. Great job. Always anxious for the new podcasts to come out. Thank you so much for writing in, Nurse Girl. Um, I'm not sure what your actual name is, but I like your handle. 
Now, you may know, especially if you've been listening for a while, that uh, my mother is a nurse practitioner and has been. I was kind of raised with her ranting about the traditional medical system that she sometimes had to work in while also being influenced by her as a holistic uh, nurse practitioner as well as herbalist. So definitely dabbling in and, and speaking in the world of alternative health. And I'm very happy to carry on that torch. And it's really cool to hear. I, I know that there are a lot of nurses out there and nurse practitioners who do listen to this show. So tip of my hat to you. I was raised by one of you and I wouldn't exist this way without you. So thanks for listening. And if you are listening and want to get in touch, the best way to do it is to write me at abel at fatburningman.com, but even better, you'll get some sweet goodies, meal plans, recipes, as well as giveaways and special discounts if you sign up for our free newsletter over at fatburningman.com. So just go to fatburningman.com, sign up for the newsletter. Once you do, just reply to the email that comes from me, and I try to read every single one. And, you know, you've heard a lot of people who have gotten in touch over the past few months on this show. So who knows what will happen when you get in touch. But in any case, I always love hearing from you. And there are many more podcasts coming your way. Now, if you're ready to drop fat, boost energy, and take your health into your own hands, then check this out. We're just about to kick off our New Year Wild 30-Day Challenge, and you still have time to join in the fun. Check out our Wild 30 Challenge for a complete package of tools to help you start shedding fat right now. All you have to do is go to fatburningman.com slash challenge to join us. That's fatburningman.com slash challenge. And so for a very limited time to help you guys get started, we're knocking 50 bucks off the price of entry, but you have to hurry because we're about to get everything all kicked off. So if you want to get started burning fat with delicious real food that we cook at home ourselves all the time and are tested by many people around the world, if you want to eat well and drop fat and take your health into your own hands, Join the wild 30-day challenge. Just go to fatburningman.com slash challenge. No more boring meals and calorie counting wheels. No more embarrassing weigh-ins or killer treadmill workouts. Just delicious food and simple at-home exercises that'll get you shedding fat in no time. So if you're up for 30 days of eating and living wild, join the challenge over at fatburningman.com slash challenge. Oh, and don't forget... Hang on until the end of this show, and I'll share a special reading from my new number one best-selling book of humor and poetry and satire, Designer Babies Still Get Scabies. Reviews and feedback are coming in from all over the world, so I'm really glad that some of you are getting the jokes. Now, on to the show with Dr. Tarman. We're chatting about how she dropped 100 pounds and kept it off for more than a decade, how she beat food addiction, the strange connection between alcoholism and bulimia, how the food industry engineers our food to be as addictive as possible, and tons more. Let's go hang out with Dr. Tarman. All right, folks, Dr. Tarman is the medical director of one of Canada's largest treatment centers for substance abuse and the author of Food Junkies, Recovery from Food Addiction, which is now in its second edition. As a recovering food addict herself, she walks the talk. She has lost and maintained a 100-pound weight loss for over 12 years now, and she has not had any sugar or flour for over eight years. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Tarman. 
Oh, I'm really glad to be here. Thank you for asking. So let's let's start right now with, with just the simple fact that so few people are able to maintain that that sort of weight loss for even a year or two years or let alone over a decade. So take us back in time a little bit. Uh, where were you starting from? Okay. Well, you know, if, if, if we, we don't want to go too far back in time because we started from where many, many people, uh, women particularly, or actually it's probably guys now too, you know, in university years being really worried about my weight because I was starting to uh, eat the junk food in the hospital cafeteria and whatnot and starting to gain weight. And um, I started from the get-go trying to lose weight, which was always really easy to do, but to keep it off was impossible. And so right from the get-go, uh, there was always this sort of, I guess what we call yo-yo dieting thing happening. And it took me years until I realized that for me anyway, the thing that really worked was uh, recognizing that that pull to go back to the old patterns of eating, you know, to slip back into the chips and, the, and basically the junk foods, that there was a dynamic there which now... It, it took me being an addictions doctor to recognize it, um, to say, hey, this is just like my addicts who are using their drugs. And I was a smoker as well and found that it was the same kind of pull. Mm. And that, I mean, that took me many years to cotton on to. But once I got that, that made all the difference. And that would have been uh, probably 12 years ago. But I realized sugar was the culprit, but it wasn't the only culprit. There, there was the flour, and uh, I mean, there were there were other things I had to discover, and that's essentially what my campaign or my message is now. Because just like we were saying a little bit earlier in uh, in, in before we started talking, now I was one of those doctors that was really obese telling my patients to eat well, and yeah. you know, looking at myself, going, "How can I do this?" But doing it. Anyway, that's not the case anymore. <laughs> Thank goodness. But, you know, and addiction is such a strong word. Some people are really possessive about it or very, you know, emotional about it. And and I think rightfully so. It's it's a terrible thing. But one just one simple line in your book just helped me kind of reframe it in my mind. And it's, Phil, you eat like I used to drink. Uh-huh. And it's like, oh, yeah, totally. Because you can see that show up. You know, that's that's something that's almost visceral. So can we dig into that a little bit? How does food addiction work compared to, say, tobacco? Yeah, you know, your comment about the addiction, the word, that's the thing that really scares people. And if there's anything that I can contribute to the world, it would be to destigmatize that word, just like destigmatizing the word depression and anxiety. And people are no longer as afraid to say, hey, I'm depressed, because it's a common phenomena. And if we could feel the same way about addiction, we could talk more openly about it. Because that feeling, like when there's probably a lot of ex-smokers in your crowd because a lot of people who are trying to eat well have quit smoking and they know most people know that if you especially if you've been a smoker the moment you walk by the, the cigarette uh, burning from somebody else and get that smell it's like it we call it in the drug world euphoric recall mm. you remember oh yeah it was nice to have that cigarette and something subconscious lures you back and it's recognizing that subconscious lure uh, that the alcoholic gets. So Phil, you know, got that from the alcoholic who said, you eat like I drink. But the smoker will get that. And you can have just a little bit, you know, a puff. I'm going to have a puff because I'm stressed out. You do that and you're smoking a pack a day within two or three weeks. So we see the same pattern over and over and over again. And 
maybe the fact that you see these commercials on TV, you know, rats eat sugar like cocaine addicts, it's dramatic to catch people's attention. But probably addiction, food addiction, is more comparable to tobacco addiction. It's not as big in the obvious way. It kills you, but it'll kill you in 10 or 20 years. But it's that ubiquitous every day you see people smoking 20, 30 times a day. That's what we do with food now. We eat 20, 30 times a day, little nibbles here and there. It's more like smoking. And like you said, those environmental cues, it's also important to to mention that we live in a toxic food environment, that we live in a toxic culture even, that that like it's unprecedented the, the amount of, I guess you could just call it a stimulus, right? Like anything that we're subjected to is completely unprecedented for our our development as humans. Yeah, it would be like people trying to quit smoking 30 years ago when smoking was everywhere. It was really hard to quit smoking. Your partner smokes, the doctor that you're talking to in the office smokes. I mean, we smoked in hospitals then. So to try to quit sugar, try to quit flour now, yeah, it's just... And it's not only that it's everywhere, it's being pushed on us, Mm -hmm. even more than tobacco. It's pushed on us. You're not feeling well? Here, I made you some cookies. Well, geez, you know, one of the things that that I read in your work as well, and I'm just going to read this because it's so powerful. Sugar is also a gateway drug to other addictions. Think of how we make our children sugar addicts with cereal and candy and fruit juices, which then predisposes children to other addictions as they grow older. And I never really thought about that before I knew that you know like the advertising that even I got that's in my subconscious somewhere growing up was was deeply unsettling and and trying to get us to eat their food but I didn't think of how that could translate into alcoholism or cravings for tobacco later in life but it it totally makes sense that we're actually conditioned to be addicted to to something yes I think so well I mean we we are already primed to be that way and so the food industry mentioned the toxic food industry knows that and deliberately, as you know from uh, other stuff, you know, Michael Moss's book, uh, Sugar, um, Salt, Fat, and food engineers who take a phenomena that's normal in the brain. We all like sugar. I mean, unfortunately, it's energy dense and the brain likes it. But it's meant to be the sugar of strawberries and apples and bananas, not the stuff that we eat, right? And so the food industry takes a normal phenomena that is already a predisposition and just blows it out of proportion. That's where the danger is. Yeah. That, that's that's the crime, really. And it's interesting that it almost comes out looking like cocaine, white sugar. You know, it's it's like the process is not dissimilar to making a super intense drug. Exactly. And if we could smoke uh, sugar, it would be even more potent. And you know what? We're starting to smoke sugar now. It's called vape. Right. With the jewels and all the vapes that are out there. I was reading a little bit of the stats about high schoolers and it was, it, it's off the charts. I'm sure you probably know more than I do, but can we talk about that a little bit? Just because it's one of those things where, I don't know, vaping is cool. Maybe it'll help people, you know, not smoke regular tobacco anymore. But in fact, we're finding the opposite. Exactly. Uh, A lot of people who vape never picked up a cigarette and they wouldn't have picked up a cigarette. And now they're picking up uh, with the vaping and they may not be doing the translation into smoking, but, uh, you know, it's a gateway drug. So sure. I think that's an inevitability. Well, and even the the jewels in particular, I was reading about how that's a proprietary nicotine salt. It's not even, you know, at least with tobacco, if you're smoking a cigar or something, it, it's it's remotely resembling something. But no, I mean these these nicotine salts, these chemicals combined with sugars, combined with all of the flavorings and stuff, like 
this is clearly not good. Maybe it's not as bad as smoking, but it is if all of our high school kids and, and middle schoolers are addicted to it. And then, you know, and we could we should probably talk about this as well. It's so important when you're in those early years because you kind of come back to them as your comfort zone later in life, right? Like I'm thinking of myself with music. I've I've always loved performing, and, and that's mostly because I did it when I was a little kid, and I've been doing it ever since. So if that's true with vaping and tobacco, it's like it's building that into your brain, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I mean, you said I don't really have much more to say other than that I do worry that it's introducing more people that would have otherwise. You see, the thing about smoking, it's from an addiction point of view, the dynamic of, of how quickly something goes to the brain is a major piece of addiction. And smoking is the fastest way to the brain. So, you know, alcohol, it takes somebody to become an alcoholic a long time. It's a slow, progressive disease. And food was a slow, progressive disease. It's as terrible as cocaine, but not until you're 50. Then you have diabetes and heart disease and die. But it takes you a while. Just like the alcoholic, it takes a while. Whereas the crack user or the crystal meth user, they're dead within two or three years because it's smoking and it just ravishes the brain. If we start smoking sugar, we're going to speed up that process so that I'm not dying when I'm 50. I'm dying when I'm 35. And we see that. Look at how many kids have diabetes now. Yeah. And I, I think the thing that really didn't occur to me until, you know, reading about the, the serial commercials and, and how we're kind of conditioned for this is, is once again, with the high school vaping or, or whatever, even if you do quit that, then the risk is that you still have the addiction, right? It's built into you at this point, and you're just going to move that addiction around to different things. Exactly, yeah. I mean, we already have the, the propensity because of our reward pathway, which has now been jacked up thanks to the vaping or thanks to the cereal. And uh, you can kind of uh, desensitize that, which is what recovery is all about. Mm -hmm. It's desensitizing this heightened trigger-happy brain now, which is so easily, I mean, you know, and then it's not only that, we're also giving drugs like uh, for attention deficit, all sorts of speed. I, I don't know what, what uh, well, you're in the States, so you, you probably know the same drugs that I do. But anyway, the medications for attention deficit are stimulant-based, and uh, the only difference between them and a drug on the street is how you take them. One is slow release and one is injectable. And so we're giving kids food, vaping, drugs, like it's scary. And uh, we're not only doing it to our kids, our infants, we're doing it to our fetuses because there's research now showing that what a woman eats will predispose her baby when it's born towards a, a heightened sweet tooth. So and if you, once you have a heightened sweet tooth, that's essentially saying your brain is trigger happy for other types of stimulation. Yikes. So, yeah, it's pretty scary. Uh, and I think it's why we, uh, it's really time to stop being afraid of the word addiction. Let's just call a giraffe what it is and get on with it. Yeah, which is partially, you know, one of the biggest steps that I had to get over and a lot of other people do when they when they change their lifestyles, unfortunately, is a change of worldview, um, which we're raised to believe, oh, the world's out to save us and keep us healthy and all that. But you kind of have to, before you accept these other things as true, you need to be like, oh, maybe the world is not trying to help me out. Maybe we're being exploited here. And then you can make some progress, right? But that, like, we live in an addictive world. We shouldn't be ashamed to be addicted to something, exactly. right? Exactly. 
Exactly. Especially because when you're a baby, you know, you're being exposed when you're the most vulnerable. So exactly. So let's get rid of the shame too. There's a lot of shame with addiction, a lot of it. And how crazy is that? Because I'm sorry to say it, I don't want to get too political here and scare everybody away. But, you know, our society is premised on uh, creating demand. And what better way to create demand but by creating addiction? So it's everywhere. Well, exact, uh, it's the engine of our economy, isn't it? It's getting you. Ad- I mean, there's no real disincentive unless someone dies and they're not long, not a customer anymore. There's there's no disincentive for making your um, products, every product, as addictive as possible. And we see that in food. We see that in, in vaping and social media. And it's just it seems like it's coming at us from all directions. But I'd like to share something else I found in your work, which was, uh, and I'd I'd never come across this before. Gastric bypass surgery and bariatric surgery has been something I've seen more and more as the years go on, like professionals recommending this as the only option for people because they know they won't eat right. So we we might as well cut their stomachs out. But (laughs) the second year after gastric bypass surgery, alcohol abuse increased significantly. 60% of these patients insisted they did not have problems with drinking before the surgery, but when he or she is unable to overeat, he or she turns to another means to find intoxication. And when I read that, it turned me white as a ghost. Yeah, and we see that happening. And it's it's partly because, yes, they can't eat as much. It's also, again, it's that uh, quick route to the uh, brain. When they do um, gastric bypass, it means that some of the uh, uh, food is rerouted. Part that the intestines are rerouted in such a way that the hit is faster. Mm. Um, so that that the amount of alcohol you don't need as much to get drunk, and that is a sure way for uh, addiction. So, like, it, yes, it's it's a real problem. And talk about uh, a community. People who generally get gastric bypass are middle aged. They've tried everything else. Food has been an issue. Addiction. They've been using food, not alcohol. Mm. It, it generally people either do drugs and then food or anyway these are this is usually a population that doesn't have a big history of uh, other types of alcohol maybe maybe a tobacco abuse and that's it so then now suddenly they're drinking and they have a tremendous amount of shame because they don't have that history and so getting them to talk about it is a big deal uh, I like to speak to sort of bariatric surgery I don't know if I could use the word survivors because they're people who now have basically, I don't know, butchered might be a strong word, but done something to their intestines that that has a lot of side effects. And they're now starting to gain weight because they haven't changed their eating Mm -hmm. and they want to eat more. You know, you can't eat the real food that we're going to advocate because you you don't have the same stomach mass or or, or capacity anymore. So you have to mush your food down. Basically, you have to process your food more. And then drinking is the best way to do it. And, uh, they're really vulnerable. Yeah. 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 So it, it seems so often these solutions that are presented by Western medicine or just like traditional media are just leading us down this an even more dangerous path while promising that they have the silver bullet at the same time somehow. And- and, you know, it, your suggestion, like the, the food plan that you suggest, which I think is basically the one that I suggest, I think it's great, which is just eat real food, you know, moderate amounts, yeah. is a great one. Uh, but it is, I'm a doctor, I see this all the time. That's not the thing that's recommended because people don't follow it. And they follow it, but not for long. And I think that once we 
start talking addiction and say, hey, I can't eat this because I'll get addicted to it, they will be able to follow because that's the thing that trips people up. It's the elephant in the room, basically. Well, even you, you mention um, Oprah in your book, and I think she's uh, a, a good example just because she's so visible. It has been for so long. But I, I didn't realize that she had um, um, tried crack until I read your book, and I thought that was that was fascinating. And also, you know, I, I was just furious when she came out on, uh, I, I think it's Weight Watchers, and she's just like, I can eat bread. I love bread. I still eat bread all the time, and I'm, you know, and... Um, What's your take on that? Do you remember that commercial? Or, or? Uh, I don't remember that commercial, but I know that's her line. Yeah. I, I know that. And, and uh, of, of course, you know, the thing about addiction is, could we use another word? Maybe we could. Uh, but like I said, I'd like to destigmatize it. But let's just call it what it is. Uh, the thing about that is, if you've been not e- eating the food that you're as a trigger, your cravings are quiet. But then if you reintroduce it, it's not like you become a ravaging, uh, crazy person wolfing everything down right away it takes a while uh you know think about the smoker who picks up cigarettes or the alcoholic uh it it might take actually three or four or five or six months before they're back so the first time you might be able to get away with it uh and the second week and the third week but what you're going to find is that instead of now every saturday it's every saturday and wednesday and then in a month or two it's saturday wednesday Let's do Friday, Friday in there, and now let's do Monday in there. And before you know it, it's every day again. Uh, and then, before you know it, it's every meal. Like, it's a gradual process. So Oprah can have her bread. But at some point, I would like to stop her and say, Oprah, you just had bread. What are you planning to eat later today? And how much would you like to have bread at that meal? And probably her desire for bread will have increased from right. before and at a certain point it's going to increase to the point where she's just going to say what the hell i'm going to have some because i've had a hard day and i deserve it and that kind of thinking that's uh beginning that's what we call thinking thinking in addiction speak yeah the thing i like about the addiction um world is if we can get over the idea about the stigma of it is it opens up a whole bag of tools that you might not have had before like the concept of stinking thinking the reason that we need support and mentors, you know? Yeah. Well, we're social creatures, and um, so often, especially in America, food is is a weird one because people are so, once again, possessive over it and, and defensive about it, and the community basis of hunting, gathering, preparing food has, has almost completely been lost. <laughs> just look just look at a hospital cafeteria and you got proof yeah. of that, right? Huh. Yeah. Oh, that's good. I like that. Yeah. And when you said the word defensive, I thought, you know what the first reaction is if you ask somebody what the who's an alcoholic what their drinking is like, they get defensive. Yeah. There's something about, you know, people yeah, there's a defensiveness that if there wasn't an addiction pattern, I think it would be much more communal. Yeah. Yeah. I think it would be. And we say the opposite of addiction is connection. Mm-hmm. You know, again, it's it's a whole world that that we bring in. And another thing you mentioned is how a craving is like an earworm of the brain. Yeah. Describing cravings and things like that was was really fascinating to read about. But one thing I think that that hopefully helps simplify it, or at least it did for me, is when you think about a trigger food, it's anything that you eat. And then you want more of it, 
Whereas an, an actual food, the first bite is always the best. And then it's, it's downhill from there. But I mean, you can, you can still enjoy it for a while. But there's a threshold that you reach that some people seem to be able to realize I'm here. I've reached it. I can stop. Whereas other people, it kind of seems like there's just no hope. I'm going to keep mowing through it. What is that distinction or how do you how do you know which type of person you might be? So, you know, that that's a really interesting thing, because the way that you describe that is the way that food should be. And if we wanted to understand, I, I guess I'm going to call it normal eating. It's a hormonal endocrine model of eating. We have the you know, we have hormones that tell us when we're hungry, ghrelin insulin to some degree. You don't want to use insulin because that makes you ravishingly hungry. But anyway, and then we have leptin, which is our satisfied. That's our, our sort of satiation hormone. And if we're eating real food, that's the world we live in. So that I'm hungry. And then when I'm full, my leptin tells me I'm full 20 minutes later, done, don't eat anymore. Good. But what happens when we start eating even though we're not hungry uh, anymore, but we, we have this earworm, this itch, that this thing that we got to keep doing because you keep, you said we have the first bite and then it's basically downhill from here. You, you kind of coast on satisfaction. That's the perfect way things should go. But when we have uh, the addiction paradigm, we start introducing neurochemicals like dopamine. Dopamine is that itch, it's the earworm. And, and it should be quelled by the leptin, but if you're eating something that jacks up the dopamine like sugar, you have the desire to eat, even though you actually don't wanna eat, you're full. Like the person who's pigging out, the person who's having a, a binge is actually saying, I wish I could stop. I wish I could just get this crazy desire to want to finish and have one more to feel better. It's not that they still, they just want a, this itch to stop. That's dopamine. And that means that there's, it, it, we, you know, we say that the, uh, the switch is, it doesn't turn off because the leptin is not powerful enough. The dopamine is higher. And uh, when we know when that is happening, there's something wrong with this picture, and what we call that is addiction. And not everybody is a food addict, but they can be addicted to food because of the foods that they're eating, and when they stop eating them, they're good, right? And, and as a clinician, I like to recognize that there are people who can, maybe not Oprah, I don't think Oprah, but there are some people who can, even you, you talk about uh, the, the chocolate, you know, a person who's not an addict might be able, because they haven't gone that far and they're not that trigger happy, they might be able to eat within that normal realm so that a little bit of a, a flame up is manageable. But for somebody who's gone way overboard because they were a previous crack user, alcoholic, or they've been eating like binge eating since they were, you know, 10 years old, they can't because that dopamine flare up is just too much. And it's like a flame, a fire, and uh, it just takes over right away. Again, not, not necessarily that day, but the desire starts coming in that itch or that earworm. Right. And since so many of us are kind of attached to identities, I've found that a lot of athletes whether they're former athletes or current athletes, think that they're immune to all of this somehow. Oh, God. That, yeah. You know, but yeah. you can be addicted to running too much or swimming too much or biking too much or overeating or, or just exercising that much so that you can eat that much, exactly. right? And, I know a lot of people who do that. Or undereating, right? So could you talk about the, the I guess, less obvious uh, manifestations of addiction? Yes, absolutely. So, you know, 
I was uh, saying earlier about the um, normal uh, way of eating, which uh, we have hormones that govern that, uh, which is uh, ghrelin and leptin. And dopamine is, is included into that so that when you're hungry, you think about food and you look forward to food. But the looking forward is not so strong that once you're full, you don't look forward to food anymore. When uh, you are uh, overeating or undereating, the hormones get jumbled up and then therefore the neurochemicals do. For example, if I'm not eating, my ghrelin is going to start really uh, getting louder. So I'm hungry, I'm hungry, I'm hungry. Um, ghrelin kicks in dopamine and dopamine is the neurochemical of desire, of, of anticipation, of craving. Basically, whenever you have a craving, you're experiencing dopamine. And if you're hungry, that dopamine ramps up and you know yourself, like if you're, this is why I'm not crazy about fasting for a food addict. Now, a non-food addict might be able to get away with it, but a food addict, you get too hungry. The hungrier you get, the more you think about food and the more you start fantasizing. That's all dopamine. And it's like um, you can get high off the dopamine. Yeah. It's the same as the alcoholic or the crack or the junkie who starts thinking about their drug. They're already having physical manifestations of the drug while they're waiting for their pusher to you know, come around the corner. They're already getting high, and they'll tell you that. Why? Because they're anticipating the dopamine. It's the gambling rush. It's the soon something will happen. And uh, with the anorexic, the person who's not eating, they're not eating, but guaranteed 24-7 they're thinking about food. They're thinking about that 300 calories that they're going to let themselves eat that day. They're going to play with that food. They're going to think about it, and it has its own kind of high, and they will resist eating because uh, at least this is the theory and ask them when you eat are you, are you like thank god i get to eat no they're fighting it i don't want to eat hmm. i mean they do want to eat but they don't it's it's this battle yeah and and we've all experienced maybe little bits of these feelings but how do you and, and where do you not that you have to draw a line well but, yeah it's yeah, a continuum. How does that it's work? Great. So in the addiction world, we have this thing that's called, uh, now it's called substance use disorder. So it's a diagnosis of addiction. It used to be called uh, substance dependence and substance uh, abuse. Now we've just thrown that out. The, uh, we use the DSM-5, uh, I think the States does, does too. Yeah. Uh, so we have criteria what define addiction. And basically those criteria, there's 11, it's, it's on a scale of 0 to 11. And uh, if you, I would think that anybody in the toxic food environment that we live in today is in at least the zero to three mile addiction mm -hmm. and then the more they do another drug or more food they're moving into moderate and then the extreme uh, of severe addiction so you're going to follow how many of these criteria do you fit and at a certain point you're going to be addicted so the criteria if i can just say quickly craving because that's dopamine fine can you control it can you have just one cheat day or an indulgence day? If you can, you're in the, I mean, you're still living in an environment of food, so there's going to be a zero to three, yeah. but you can manage. Then can you stop when you need to stop because you've got diabetes and you really have to stop now? The food addict cannot. Are you continuing despite danger and it's actually causing impairment? Now we're into dangerous territory. Mm -hmm. And then we get to the point where is it controlling your mental landscape so that you can't do anything other than think about food? Can you imagine living in a day-to-day -day life where food is either always there in your face or at least in the background? Mm -hmm. 
And the food addict, it's in their face to the point where I don't want to go to work. I don't want to see friends. I don't even, all I want to do is sit in front of the TV and give in to this insatiable craving. That's the extreme end. Now, why do we keep giving in even though it's underwhelming almost every time? Because it's it, that's a, that's a great question. That is the power of dopamine. Hmm. Dopamine is the de, uh, anticipation of food, and the actual satisfaction of food is leptin and, to some degree, serotonin. It's another neurochemical. Ask any crack addict, "Are you enjoying this?" They say, "No, I hate this, but I still want it." Mm-hmm. What they're actually experiencing is the want. The want is dopamine. It has nothing to do with the experience of, of enjoying it. You can hate it, but still want it. Yeah. And that's that's the insanity of addiction. Uh, so people just, I mean, it's not fun being an addict because you got this itch for something you don't even want anymore. Or you might want it for five minutes. You do get a pleasure for five minutes. And that initial pleasure, which might have lasted for a, a, an evening, gets smaller and smaller and smaller until it's like five minutes. It's like very disappointing. Well, and that's how it works with, with drug addiction as well, right? They're always chasing that, that first or second or third time or whatever, and it's never that good again. And, and eventually they don't even get that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Now, um, if you don't mind, personally speaking, the way that you eat and create meals or the way that you separate yourself from the things that are triggering you, could you explain mm-hmm. how you handle that? Because it's in some ways unique but very very powerful and obviously works well for you and a lot of the people you work with yeah so so i'm one of those people who like i said had spent many years going back and forth uh and and you know would lose the weight and then would gain the weight and i don't know history long history at at a certain point i realized i have to stay away from this stuff and um i'm living in an environment where this is all subconscious like we were talking about earlier it's ubiquitous cues all over the place I have a bad day and I'm gonna give in because I'm a human being and not only am I a human being but I'm a trigger happy human being because I've had many years of this experience Uh, what I have done is and, and this is what we do in addiction and it's gonna sound crazy until you adopt the addiction framework and then it makes a lot of sense I control all the triggers of people places things that's a that's an addiction um, terminology. Uh, the people who are going to ask me to eat, come on, it's your birthday. I made this for you. I either don't see them anymore, or I tell them ahead of time, don't. We have the conversation. Mm-hmm. Uh, places I don't go to buffets. Things I make sure that stuff is not in my closet or in the fridge for uh, when I'm like I, I make sure my external environment is clean. And in addiction, we say first things first, sobriety first. If I have to go somewhere and I can't guarantee that or an escape, I don't go. Mm-hmm. They might go, hey, that's pretty extreme. And and I'll say, yes, I have the choice of living that kind of extreme life. And I admit it is. I mean, I even go to the point of weighing and measuring my food because I don't have a sense anymore of when I'm full. I don't trust it. Okay, I'm not saying everybody has to do that. That's that's. Um, sure. It depends on where you fit on that continuum. But my choice is I'd rather do that rather than suffer the uh, 
the pain of that up and down and the self-loathing and the weight gain and you know how terrible it feels when the scale is going up again all of that stuff is in the past like I have total peace of mind I get on the scale the worst that happens is is I'm three pounds over because of, of water mm-hmm. and you no know, that's it I'm not worried about another 30 pounds here we go yeah you know, and I, I don't worry about my clothes. I don't worry about how I look. I don't worry about arthritis. I used to have all sorts of conditions that I don't have anymore. Hmm. And that is worth the price of carrying a scale and telling people, please don't offer me cake on my birthday. You know? Yeah. And it, well, it takes the hard emotional work and willpower out of it if you just say, I don't do this. I don't eat that. Or whatever. Like for me, it's like I don't eat fast food and I haven't. In- I don't know, probably a decade almost. I, I don't even think there's there's been an exception, really, depending on how you define it. It's just like I'll eat homemade um, treats, and, and I enjoy that, but it's like I can eat just a little sliver of Boston cream pie, and I'm okay, and, I, and, and I'm done. I didn't always you know, operate this way. It's taken a long time, but it's really powerful once you get a little bit of know thyself going on don't you think it's it's really important to not say that like you have all the answers for everybody but you have some amount of experience with yourself and you know how you operate and you know what your blind spots or at least some of them and weaknesses are such that you can artificially engineer your environment so you're not making the decisions you don't want to make and and i love the word that you use when you said blind spot because addiction hides in the blind spot it's one of our biggest blind spots and if we can just you know my my bucket list is uh you know what would i like to contribute to the world is that we just start talking about addiction as part of our self-knowledge is that something that I should think about here? Is it a blind spot? I'm happy if a person does that because they might be able to say, no, it's not, or it is to a degree. So you say I can have a bit of Boston cream pie is better than somebody who, um, because you've, you've thought about it. You've, you've tried it out. You've been conscious about that. Uh, a person who hasn't had that, they, they could be eating the whole Boston cream pie and not even know. So it, it's about self-knowledge, and let's include addiction into that piece of self-knowledge without shame that it's just another piece of the puzzle yeah with with some amount of compassion and and self-love hopefully because that doesn't necessarily need to be a bad thing like i guess what i'm getting at is it can be liberating to abstain from things I think so. Absolutely. I feel I feel completely absolutely liberated is good. And in the same way as it's okay, it's too bad Robin Williams could not say I'm depressed. You know, he might be alive today. So can we say I have an addiction to things? not because there's something wrong with me, but because I happen to be at the wrong place at the wrong time uh, in terms of uh, what, what my mother fed me or whatever, you know, because in childhood we don't have that those choices. Uh, so that now this is something that uh, is part of my makeup and it might not be to somebody else. Yeah, because some people listening might be like, oh my God, I could never give up nachos forever. I could never give up chocolate forever or something else like that. Um, but they're also not you. <laughs> and... Uh, and everyone loves different things and makes different compromises and, and what have you. Yeah, that's right. But they might also find that if they uh, stop eating the nachos, that they'll actually be liberated and feel like, oh, thank God, I don't have to eat that. I mean, I used to go to Starbucks and 
Now I look at that stuff and go, oh, thank God I'm not under the under the, the pull of these foods. It's almost under a spell, isn't it? Where it's like you, yeah. you know that you don't want it, but you crave it so much that you go anyway. Exactly, yeah. And everything is just engineered to be that now, it seems. Yes, yes. So, you know, that, that one of the phrases I like to use is freedom tastes great. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. Yeah. Oh my gosh, we we could talk all day, but I, I want to make sure we get to a couple of other things. Is there anything else that you could offer to try to, um, I don't want to say that I'm not addicted to anything and that I never have been, but that, that moderation bit where it's like eating a little bit of Boston cream pie or never having Boston cream pie again. Like, how do you draw that line and is it, does it move over time? Do you become not an addict anymore once you've identified as, as such? I, I don't know. It depends on, again, it's the question of where you are in the continuum. I've heard that people say they can move back, um, but I do think that at a certain point, there is no moving back. There's a whole lot of phenomena that uh, make it so that you can't go back, which we don't have time. But read my book and you'll find yeah. out what I about i don't know about the boston cream pie because i saw your recipe and it didn't actually look that bad you had a bit of stevia and well, i think there was some honey in there but okay anyway just a, uh, usually a tablespoon or two for flavor but we don't use it for like yeah okay actual sweetness um, yeah you see if you think about it we normalize toxic foods like a snickers mm. bar mm -hmm. is considered normal it's not it's poison it's a toxin yeah but a little bit of like fruit is not a toxin if you keep it in the package that it's packaged in, the apple or the banana or the whatever it is. Yes. Um, if you take a little bit of uh, stevia or a little bit of honey that's within the realm of normal life, I think that it, it's like it's not going to blast our pancreas and make us diabetic. It's mm. not going to blast our brain and make us addicted. It's because we've moved into those otherworldly realms that it's hard to come back. Yeah. So moderation as long as we know what we're calling moderate and normal, mm -hmm. I don't think even one bite of a Snickers bar is moderate because mm -hmm. it's a poison. It's like saying a moderate bite of asbestos. Yeah. Well, okay. So this is what I wanted to get into a little more is that um, one of your steps or one of the ways that you know that you're an addict is you keep doing it even though it's um, negatively affecting your life. But that's probably the biggest blind spot, right? Where people are just like, no, I can do it. I'm fine. I remember my girlfriend in high school, her, her mom, unfortunately, was an alcoholic and she would you know, wake up, put vodka in her coffee cup and then drive her to school sloshed. And since she could drive, she's like, oh, it's not a problem for me. Yes. Um, yes. <laughs> it's a problem. <laughs> it's a problem. Yeah. So how do you know or how could you identify your own blind spots like that? Because obviously that's denial. It's it's obvious to people around her, but not her. Yes. Yes. That's great. I mean, the alcoholic, the food addict is often the last person, but to, to know, but, and, and by the way, you can be skinny and be addicted to sure. food too, mm -hmm. you know, you know, the fat is on the inside, not on the outside. It's still going to kill you eventually. Probably the, the level of distress and pain because a person knows when they can't control, like they want to be able to just have a little bit. Mm -hmm. Just a, just a little bag of chips, but they finish the whole thing. Or, or they, you know, they rifle through the free freezer to find out, is there, there's got to be some more ice cream in here. Like when, when we're, usually the person knows it to some extent, they just, but it's usually in that realm of shame because they're embarrassed to say that they're hiding their ice cream so that they don't have to give it, give it their last supply out. Or they're hiding the fact that they're even going into the garbage because there's nothing in the freezer. Well, there's got to be something in the garbage from yesterday. Like when you're getting into that level of behavior, you know something's wrong, but you don't want to say it to yourself or to some, somebody else. We usually say the person has to wait 
until they come to it. Hmm. But how do you know? Well, we have quizzes. We have like the 20 questions hmm. of uh, prediction, which is in the book, and it's on the internet. Yeah. And usually people will say yes to those. You know, like, for example, have you ever eaten out of the garbage? Have you ever stolen food? Have you ever do you want to eat in private because you don't want people to see how you eat when you really want to eat? Mm. You know, you have things like basically when there's shame cloaked around it, there's something funny. It's not communal anymore. Uh, you know, yeah. yeah, it's private. It's yeah. something I do, you know, and I'm hiding it somehow. Yeah. Now, one of the things that I think is, is very concerning about the way that the world is set up now is it's training us and conditioning us to search outside of ourselves for whatever product, whatever thing. Um, and I'm talking mostly about technology. It's, it's, it's so engineered into our lives with all these distractions that kind of break our willpower over time. And, and it's so insidious that we're not just driving by billboards anymore. It's like there's a hamburger on my iPhone because it yeah. knows that you're addicted to hamburgers, right? And so every website you go to now, it's there are hamburgers following you around. So how do you manage all this in, in today's world? Yeah, that's I don't know. I mean, this is this is an example of how we have captured our brains mm -hmm. and you know, uh, and it, it would mean then my prediction is that we are becoming ever more addicted, more and more, and we already see that we're getting more and more diabetes. Uh, I think probably I, this is just my speculation. This is not science, but probably the the rates of processed food match the rates of diabetes, which will inevitably once we start diagnosing it match the rates of uh, food addiction hmm. like, like I think it's all I think they're all hand in hand together and it's going to require extreme artificial protection yeah so you know I'm somebody who eats clean don't bring that crap in my house mm -hmm. to say it flat out uh, maybe in a nicer way than that <laughs> yeah. you know like I have parties now there's no booze I say look no don't it's not bring your own booze it's bring no booze there will be no booze don't come to this party if you want to drink mm -hmm. and uh People will still bring dessert, but they know me now so that they're much less likely to because they're too embarrassed. They know I'm going to be judgmental. Yeah. Well, <laughs> so they'll that, eat healthy food. That's another good point, though. It, it makes me think of, let's see, my wife and I, we go on kicks of not drinking for periods of time. And uh, not that we're never drinking again or anything like that. Sometimes we really enjoy it. But um, we haven't had anything to drink in like six plus months now. And we didn't even really try to do it. We just do it sometimes. And then it's so easy to keep it out of your life. Once you're not in the habit, once you're not thinking about it anymore, once you're not get used to that slight hangover, even though you might not say that it's a hangover, it's not like a full blown hangover, but you're definitely not top notch the next day. Right. And I'd be surprised if I never have more wine again or something like that. But it's uh, it's such a gift, really, to even take the things that you enjoy out of your life for a little bit so that you can re-examine your relationship with them, right? Exactly. Yes. Which I would love to see people do. And, you know, I'm not certainly not the only one who's done this, but uh, on Facebook, I did a, a sugar-free challenge for September, and I want to do one again coming up. And it was amazing how many people said, oh, my God, I can never do that. Yeah. Uh, then, you know, when we make it a challenge, it's a community thing. People are like, oh, wow. And then they exactly like you say, uh, you know, it's actually kind of nice to have this out of my life. And uh, I mean, it's it's well, yeah, it's exactly that. Well, you get momentum from it and you learn to love other things instead. And, and even more than that, I think 
if you're craving anything that's outside of you, really, it's, it's training you to, <laughs> you know, not be yourself, not be at peace, always be searching for that something you're missing. Whereas as humans, that's actually, I would assume something that's, that we're feeling more than ever is, is, is seeking for this, some sort of satisfaction from outside. Whereas I can imagine our ancestors in, in simpler times, not ever even thinking about anything else, you know, like actually being at peace. So you said artificially, which I like that word because it, it takes effort and you, you literally need to engineer your own little world, your own little bubble to survive in a world that's this toxic if you want to be healthy. So do you have any other ad advice for how to make that work? Well, first of all, so you engineer so you so you don't have those temptations, which have been engineered to make you tempted, yes. right? So you're just yes. counteracting the engineering that's already it's happened. Self-defense. It's not like some yeah. sort of delusion in some crazy yeah, yeah, world. Yeah, self-defense. Right? I would say um, that looking to the food itself, uh, identifying. Once you say, okay, I'm addicted to stuff. You don't have to say I'm a food addict, but I'm addicted to some foods. Mm -hmm. Recognize what they are. They're most likely sugar is number one. Uh, flour is number two. Anything in the processed food thing, it's been engineered to be addictive, so there's a no-brainer. It's probably addictive. Mm -hmm. uh, there are some people who can't eat grains, and so we're even going to that extent, uh, which is why I think the low-carb uh, movement is I don't even think they realize that they've stumbled on a winning formula. Sure. I don't even think because they didn't. I don't think they thought about it as a uh, an addiction thing. But they've taken out all the stuff that's addictive. It's like great. I'm happy about this. But so recognize what your triggers are and then respect them and keep them out. And, and, and then I would say uh, number three uh, is what we've kind of alluded to already. The actual withdrawal is which will feel like you're being deprived only lasts about three weeks two or three weeks you just got to suffer it out two or three weeks that's why a month of sugar-free is a good idea and then you're free so there is hope to being free of uh, these this dopamine craving hijacking basically and then you're free and as long as you don't you're going to have to figure out if you can pick up a little bit or not so you have found yourself, you've experimented, and you've found that you can have a little sliver. I bet you, though, if you had a cake, that might not work for you anymore. That you, that would push you over, would push most people over. I can't even have a sliver. So you figure out where you are and then respect those boundaries. Mm -hmm. And don't feel bad about it. Don't feel ashamed about it. Feel empowered. Exactly. And, and, and that actually leads to maybe and the, one of the biggest things is get a lot of support mm. so that you don't feel shame and that you have people to help you when you are, have a weak moment. Because willpower and being strong, it has a shelf life of about 20 minutes per day. <laughs> yeah. It's not very long. Right. Um, so you want to have somebody to call and say, help me out because I've used up my willpower for the day already. That's such a great point, and actually it's it's not very difficult to find at least an online community of people who are, are abstaining from almost anything or part of almost any group, right? It's a double-edged sword technology, but if you want to find people who are not eating sugar for 30 days or not eating sugar for 29 days, <laughs> you know, like you could find whatever specific or people who are unicyclists who never eat sugar, you can find whatever you want, and that is so important and, uh, and, and absolutely worth doing because otherwise – it's really easy to feel like you're doing all of this alone and that, that it's isolating you. And then it's, Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, so that's a dangerous yeah. path as well. 
Exactly. And it's why, you know, communities like yours um, are so good. And they're good, too, because, you know, here here I am in the addiction world and we have communities. We have 12, 12 step communities and other types of communities. But for people who don't want to do that, they want another type of community. Mm-hmm. So the communities like yours do the same thing, but they use different terminology that mm-hmm. people are comfortable with. Yeah. You know? So it's great. I mean, it's great. It's why I'm so happy that you uh, asked me to speak because uh, we're talking we're, we're we're talking the same concepts but using different language. But it's the same thing. That's one of my favorite things about doing this podcast and this show is that, yeah, I mean, there is so much to agree with. Even if we just agree that hopefully we're going to be healthier. That's a start. <laughs> that's that's a commu- community because there aren't – I mean, that feels – more rare than ever. But one point that came up at, um, a few shows ago is that it's important to embrace being a fluke. It's important to embrace being the weird one who is different from everything else that's that's happening because I don't want to follow that that current. I don't want to follow where that's going. We we know where that's going and it's not pretty. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Well, we're just about out of time, but Dr. Tarman, I want to thank you so much for spending time with us and also uh, give you a chance to mention where people can find your work and also a little bit more about second edition of Food Junkies, which is a wonderful book. Yeah, thank you. So uh, my book, Food Junkies, second edition, uh, Recovery from Food Addiction, uh, uh, gives the science, the the hormonal and the neurochemical science about this stuff and talks about how to identify if you're a food addict and also a lot about the recovery. And uh, if you want to find out just generally more, I have a website called addictionsunplugged.com or... Uh, VeraTarmanMD.com. Like me on Facebook or, or whatever. Join up on Facebook, LinkedIn, all good good ways to get a hold of me. Wonderful. Dr. Tarman, thank you so very much. For those of you watching and listening, check out Food Junkies. If there's anything that's in your life that you might want to ditch or re-examine your relationship with, it's absolutely worth it. So Dr. Tarman, once again, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Well, hey there, this is Abel James once again with a special reading from my brand new book of humor, poetry, and satire called Designer Babies Still Get Scabies. Thanks to your support, we're a number one international bestseller in humor and poetry in multiple countries in Europe, in the US, Canada, some in South America. It's really mind boggling, but I just want to thank you once again for all your support. Let's start with one called Social Media Ate My Self Esteem. The internet is mean and extreme. Social media ate my self-esteem. What was life even like before all these screens? Aww. All right, let's cheer you up with a slightly mischievous and dastardly retelling of Goldilocks and the Three Bears. There once were three bears who lived in the wood, cooking the tastiest porridge that any bear could. One day, as Mama Bear cranked it up steaming hot, the oats bubbled and burbled in their rusty old pot. But when Baby Bear bit his first bite, he cried, This porridge is burning me up inside! The family of bears set to take a small stroll, past the pines, by the bog, up the hill, round the knoll, so that when they finally made their return, the porridge oats would no longer burn. As the bear family together took off on their walk, in strode Goldilocks without a knock. She looked around quickly, and what did she see? But fresh porridge oats and a nice spot of tea. Goldilocks ate and drank, inhaled all of it. Then she searched for a good place to sit. 
Baby Bear's favorite was his daddy's old chair. She crushed it to splinters without a care. But she wasn't done, she craved some sleep. So up the stairs snuck the little creep. She flopped down in Baby Bear's bed. She of course could have made it, but messed it instead. Goldilocks dozed off that insufferable freak. To this very day, the sheets still reek. When at last the family of bears returned, they found their porridge wasn't bubbling or burned. The porridge was gone. It utterly disappeared. They figured something was up, as it seemed kind of weird, that porridge would completely waste away in what was certainly less than half a day. The bears tiptoed upstairs to explore, and that was it once they heard the loud snore. The rest of this story is up to you, but I heard Goldilocks was delicious in Mama Bear's stew. <laughs> Alright, this last one is called Crickets, and it's based on a true story of eating insects in Thailand with my wife. Crickets. Crickets are said to be nutritious, but I can say they're not delicious. In fact, when you chew, it kind of squishes. Better stick to chicken and fishes. Okay, once again, it's called Designer Babies Still Get Scabies. Go to designerbabiesbook.com to see how you can get your free audiobook. Once again, I really appreciate your reviews and support. This is Abel James signing off. We'll talk to you soon. This episode is brought to you by listeners like you and Future Greens. You want my number one health tip right now? Get your greens in every single day. I've been getting my greens on every day for coming up on, well, almost every day, let's be honest, for coming up on almost 10 years now, and I believe it makes a monumental difference to my health, performance, and overall well-being. Why? Well, most of us eat too many acidic foods like meat, dairy, or sugar and other junk carbs, leading to an unbalanced pH level in the body and more than our fair share of toxins. I don't know if you've ever tried greens supplements, but most of them taste terrible, like fish tank. And if it doesn't taste good, I won't drink it, no matter how good it is for me, especially if you're talking every day. There are tons of supplements out there packed with cheap fats, sugar, fillers, and caffeine, but we have a much better option if you're looking to increase your energy and your health. So when Allison and I are on the road, we always take Future Greens. Future Greens is a concentrated superfood powder made from 15 organic fruits and vegetables, plus six additional superfoods, as well as digestive enzymes. So in less than 60 seconds, you can get the nutrition of over 20 fruits, veggies, and adaptogens, all with less than one gram of sugar. Future Greens is packed with vitamins, minerals, and filling prebiotic fiber from whole, organic veggies, sprouts, algaes, and berries, including kale, beet, parsley, collard greens, cauliflower sprouts, broccoli sprouts, spirulina, chlorella, blueberries, raspberries, and much more. Imagine the time and expense it would take you to buy and prepare all those foods separately. Trust us, we've tried, and Future Greens makes it a heck of a lot easier. Our ingredients are harvested at peak freshness and potency and immediately concentrated and dried using cool temperature processes that preserve the energetic and nutritional integrity of all the ingredients. Whether you're looking to strengthen your immunity, cleanse your system of toxins, alkalize your body, diversify your diet, or boost your energy without caffeine, Future Greens is your new best friend. 
And as a listener of Fat Burning Man, you can get a 20% discount to try Future Greens yourself. So to get Future Greens from Wild Superfoods and your special Fat Burning Man deal, just visit fatburningman.com forward slash greens to get 20% off when you subscribe and save. On top of that, you'll get an extra bonus that I can't even tell you about right now, but just visit fatburningman.com forward slash greens. We'll see you there. Well, hey there, listener. This is Abel one more time, and I just want to say thank you for listening to this episode of the Fat Burning Man Show. If you liked it, don't forget to hit that subscribe button wherever you might be listening to or watching this show right now. And if you have a second, please leave me a quick review for the Fat Burning Man Show. I read every single one of them, and every time you leave a review, it gives us a little boost in the rankings, and that helps other people find this show. And if you can think of someone else who might enjoy and benefit from this free show, please take a second to share it with a friend or a family member. And if they're like, what is this fat burning man thing? That's a really silly name. You could be like, you're right, but here's the deal. We've recorded over 250 episodes of the fat burning man show with thought leaders in health from all over the world. And so far, We've won four awards, hitting number one in health in more than eight countries internationally. We have more than 30 million downloads already, but we're just getting started. I can't believe any of this, by the way, and couldn't do any of this without you. So thanks once again. But here's some more good news. You can download and listen to every single episode of the Fat Burning Man Show for free with zero outside advertisements, no outside sponsors, and no corporate overlords. All you have to do is type in fatburningman.com. We'll give you a, a second here just to type it in, fatburningman.com. And you'll get all the show notes, transcripts, and video and audio versions for all the past episodes of the Fat Burning Man Show for free. Better yet, enter your email at fatburningman.com, sign up for my newsletter, and I'll even send you a quick start guide so you can take your health into your own hands right now, along with a few of our ridiculously tasty recipes as a special thanks for signing up. Once again, just go to fatburningman.com right now, enter your best email to get your free goodies with a bonus surprise straight to your inbox. This is Abel James signing off. Thank you so much for listening once again, and have a great week.